0: Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. I'm speaking today with Noam Juchtman from LSE. Uh, Noam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Very welcome. And we will be talking about your paper, "Protests as a Strategic Game, Experimental Evidence from Hong Kong's Anti-Authoritarian Movement. Could you briefly explain what the paper is about?
1: Yeah, so this is a paper that I wrote with Davide Cantoni, David Yang, and Jane Zhang. The paper is an experimental study that asks how potential protest participants respond to information about the participation of others. So in particular, if an individual believes that a protest will be attended by more people, Does that make an individual potential protester more or less likely to turn out? The reason this is sort of an an open theoretical question is that on the one hand, if you believe that many people are turning out to a protest, you might free ride on them. The protest is to some extent a public good. If you think it's being provided, you might not provide it yourself. If you think it's dangerous to turn out at a protest, you think the government might crack down you're really happy when a lot of people are turning out doing the heavy lifting for you and you're going to stay home and maybe bear the fruits of a successful revolution or something like that. On the other hand, when a lot of individuals turn out, you might think to yourself, this protest might actually succeed that's really exciting, I'm gonna turn out too. And it's it's an open question whether on the one hand, when you think more people will turn out, you're less likely to turn out, free riding, this is called strategic substitutes, or if you believe that a lot of people will turn out, you think a protest may be more likely to succeed. You might also think that with you know, a million people on the streets, a regime is less likely to crack down. So in fact, it might be somewhat safer to turn out. That generates strategic complementarities and so sort of the state of the literature when we approached this question was primarily a theoretical literature that emphasized strategic complementarity in protests against authoritarian regimes again thinking about a logic like if a million people are going to turn out on the street if that's what i think i think the regime may actually fall that makes it more appealing for me to turn out on the streets and therefore i turn out if i think only hundred people are going to be on the streets. I think it's going to be cracked down. I'm not going to turn out myself. That sort of theoretical expectation that, that arose from the most recent literature of strategic complementarity is something that was empirically untested.
0: And you have quite a few of co-authors on this project. So how did this team form? How did you come to work with these people? So
1: it's a great question and it gets a little bit to to already the the history of this project and and how we end up in Hong Kong. So so the team is part of a co-authoring team that first worked together on a paper called Curriculum and Ideology, where we studied the introduction of a new politics curriculum in mainland Chinese high schools and tried to identify the causal effect of that curriculum on students' ideologies. So that team came together. With an even older genesis in a way, maybe the start was Davide Cantoni and I had worked together for a long time studying educational institutions, having studied the economic consequences of particular educational content. In history, we wanted to study the political consequences of educational content. We began thinking about the Chinese context um, when I met David at, at UC Berkeley. He was an undergraduate there, and we talked about doing some work together, and when I told him that I was thinking vaguely about ideas related to school curricula and political ideology, he told me that he actually was aware of the fact that, that he was in the first cohort exposed to a new curriculum in mainland China and that the cohort ahead of him had been exposed to a completely different curriculum. Maybe now I'm going a little bit too far afield, but David and I and Davide began talking about school curricula in China and whether we could identify a causal effect. From that context, Jane was a PhD student at Berkeley at the time, and she had expertise on surveying and experiments within Chinese schools. And so we all got together to work on this project. Having studied school curricula in China, we discovered the existence of a student movement in Hong Kong that had fought against the attempted introduction of Chinese education in Hong Kong and successfully organized massive protests in the context of Hong Kong. We spoke to them about our research in part simply out of interest in their own sort of past successes. And just to have a conversation about a topic of interest, we then learned that this group was planning to engage in large-scale mobilization in pursuit of democratic rights. And that's where this project began.
0: So very interesting. So this kind of also answers a very interesting question about how you came up with this idea for the topic. So it really kind of evolved out of an old... Yeah. And
1: with even more, you know, circuitous routes from, from there, in fact. So one of the questions I think that naturally comes up in thinking about how to get to a, a research question is, do you start with the question and then find the context? or data set, or do you start with the context or data set and then try to discover a question? And I must say, in general, I like to have a research question first and then identify the right context to answer that question as well as possible. And the curriculum paper very much reflected that, in fact, where Davide and I had talked about trying to identify the causal effect of school curricula on ideology in places from Texas to Japan. And the conversation with David nailed the context of contemporary China. In the case of Hong Kong, the path was, was actually the opposite. And I think it was more of a struggle because of that. And so you'll see sort of how it was a struggle. Having discovered that this group of students was, was planning to work on trying to achieve democratic rights through large scale political mobilization, we realized we had stumbled on, on something really special in a way. We, You know, all of us had interest in in the evolution of historical political institutions, the impact of political institutions on development historically and today. And what we realized was that many models of the demand for the franchise or many theories of institutional change were fundamentally about history and therefore reliant on the study of archival data, which while extremely useful, cannot capture certain dimensions of a political movement or the decision to participate in a political movement. So we recognized it's special to be able to study a political movement, a movement demanding political rights in real time, as opposed to observing that movement through archival data. We understood that there are certain dimensions that are are really special, like beliefs and preferences that are very hard to observe ex post, but we didn't yet have the research question. So we began with a context. We had some sense at the time, That beliefs and preferences were particularly interesting, but we didn't have the question that became this paper. We started in a reasonable way, but not a very sophisticated and certainly not a targeted way, just by collecting as much data as we could about potential participants in this movement. So, Jane Zhang, my my co-author, is on the faculty at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Jane was able to send a mass email to Hong Kong University of Science and Technology students, and that allowed us to collect a large data set on the preferences, beliefs, political behavior, and a range of characteristics of Hong Kong students a large number of whom either participated in certain protest activity or were sympathetic to it, although certainly not all. So we began with this not very targeted large scale data collection. And we started by just looking at descriptive statistics. How were more politically engaged students different from less politically engaged students? How were more anti-authoritarian students in their political preferences different from the less anti-authoritarian students? And we wrote a descriptive paper without a very well-defined research question other than how do these politically active anti-authoritarians differ from others. It's fairly interesting in a lot of ways, not quite an economics research question to be totally frank, but of some practical importance and with some interesting underlying economics in terms of the economic preferences, in terms of the role of demographics and class background and so on. But people can can look on my website and see that this is still an unpublished working paper. It's a paper that's not as easy to publish as a paper with a sharp, motivated research question. The paper, although difficult to publish, was extremely valuable in the process of 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 making it to a really important and well-defined research question. And the insight that we had from that descriptive paper was that there are certain patterns in the data um, that were really quite surprising to us. And one was on the dimension of beliefs, which we also thought was, again, one of the really interesting sort of opportunities that that we had to study a movement in real time. Uh, relative to the the archival data. What we saw in our descriptive paper was that the more anti-authoritarian, the more politically engaged students were actually differentially pessimistic about the movement as a whole. They're pessimistic about its eventual success they're pessimistic about the support for the movement in the population. And that really went against our prior beliefs relating to this theoretical literature that I mentioned that emphasize strategic complementarity. Strategic complementarity in general says the more optimistic you are about other people's participation in a movement, the more likely you are to participate. But we found just the opposite in the correlations. The question was: What we see in the correlation is that a causal effect of beliefs about others, or perhaps it's you know it's reverse causality, perhaps it's omitted variable bias. But we saw a pattern in the data in the correlations that suggested a really interesting research question to explore experimentally.
0: And what kind of experiment design did you use in the end to establish causality?
1: So what we really wanted to focus on was something precise, which was the causal effect of beliefs about other people's participation on one's own participation. So to get that causal effect, what you need to do is measure people's prior beliefs, measure people's posterior beliefs after an information intervention, and then see whether positively updated beliefs affect turnout, whether negatively updated beliefs affect turnout. This is this is actually a fairly complicated design. It's also really complicated when you're forced to respect a constraint of providing only truthful information. And the reason for that is something like the following. Suppose we know about an upcoming protest, and and in Hong Kong we do. Every July 1st, there is an anti-authoritarian protest held in Hong Kong on the day marking the handover to China. Now, suppose we want to change people's beliefs about protest turnout in an upcoming protest. If we want to give them truthful information, how do we get them to change their beliefs about protest turnout before we actually know about protest turnout? Giving them truthful information. The answer that we came to was that we can change people's beliefs about actual protest turnout by providing them with truthful information about people's planned protest turnout. So we know people's planned turnout even before we know actual turnout at the event. So what we did was we had our sample of Hong Kong University of Science and Technology students. We elicited individuals' own planned participation in an upcoming protest. We elicited their beliefs about other people's planned turnout. We elicited their beliefs about other people's eventual actual turnout. So I might ask you, you know, do you plan to turn out? You say, probably yes. I say, what fraction of people in this experimental sample do you think will say they plan to turn out? Say 25%. I ask you, what fraction of people do you think will actually turn out? And you say, well, you know, 25% say they plan to turn out. A bunch of them end up being lazy. Maybe 15% of them will actually turn out. So what I've done is I've elicited your planned participation, your prior beliefs about other people's planned participation, and your prior beliefs about other people's actual participation. Now, eliciting everybody's planned participation, I can then, prior to the the protest itself, give a random selection of people, truthful information about planned participation and see how it affects their beliefs about other people's actual participation. So if the true planned participation rate is 17%, I can say to somebody in the treatment group the night before the protest, you know, I'm updating you on our survey. Last week, I asked you what fraction of people you said you thought would would plan to turn out, and you said 25%. The truth is 17% of people say they plan to turn out. Last week, you said 15% of people would actually turn out. Now what fraction do you think will actually turn out? Chances are this person will now update their beliefs downward and we elicit posterior beliefs. We do this in an incentivized way. And because we have some people with prior beliefs above the true level of of planned participation, some people with prior beliefs below the true level of planned participation, we get belief updating in both directions. And we can compare a treatment and control person essentially with the same prior beliefs, but the treatment person updating upward in some cases, downward in other cases. And we can see what those upward and downward causal changes in beliefs in some sense how that changes individuals' own participation. What we find is among individuals who begin with low prior beliefs about other people's planned participation, we give them information about planned participation above their priors on plans, upward. For those people with low priors in the treatment group who are updating their beliefs positively, their own turnout is lower than in the control group. For those individuals who began with high prior beliefs about planned participation, we give them information about planned participation below their priors, They update their beliefs about actual participation downward if they're in the treatment group, but the treatment group who begin with high prior beliefs actually turn out more than the control group. So in both of these independent subsamples, you can think about it essentially as two independent experiments, there's evidence of strategic substitutability. For those people who are updating their beliefs about other people's participation positively, their own turnout is negatively affected. For those people who are updating their beliefs negatively, their turnout is positively affected.
0: So as you mentioned, this is like a very complicated and sophisticated experiment design that's probably necessary to, to establish causality here. So when you, when you were developing this design, how, how did the process look like Did you like piloted it? Did you try to speak to external people Did you just talk with your co-authors?
1: I mean, it was, it was surprisingly quick in a way. The one thing that's nice about it is there is exactly one lever that we hope to move, I would, which is beliefs. And really it just became sort of a, a, a long conversation over four or five days where all we thought about was how could we move posterior beliefs, providing truthful information. And we began hoping for maybe a more sophisticated design. We were hoping to be able to move some people, You know, let's say you begin with, with a given prior. Right now for people with a given prior, we're, we're providing, we only have one piece of information. So for a given prior, you're either in the control group or you're updating your beliefs in one direction. If you begin with a different prior, you might update your beliefs in the opposite direction. But because we're providing only one piece of information for a given prior, there's going to be movement only in one direction. We're initially thinking perhaps we could get people with one prior to update in each direction. So we're even thinking about maybe a more sophisticated design. At the end, we began to get more cautious because of power considerations. So the truth is it was fast. It couldn't be piloted in a sense because we we had our experimental sample we had our survey sample that we ran in june and there just wasn't enough time i actually i think that we even we completed the design just several months you know within the month of the experiment itself so i would say it sounds complicated but at the very least there really is only only one treatment and and i think maybe you know to our credit but but also our good fortune the the experiment was very theoretically motivated so in that sense i think that can be very very helpful i think that the experiments that are less grounded in theory can often be harder to design and require more piloting in this case i think our biggest sources of uncertainty were were really about sort of the distribution of prior beliefs. And, you know, would we actually have enough power to observe sort of a causal effect that was well and precisely estimated for people updating their beliefs positively and negatively? And, you know, did we have power to, you know, really precisely identify treatment effects for each group? But the fact that it was theoretically well-defined, I think helped
0: us a lot. And you chose to pre-register this experiment? Yeah. So what was the motivation to do that?
1: So yeah, we pre-registered, we didn't submit a complete pre-analysis plan, but I think we would have if we had had more time, frankly. The motivation, I mean, I so for for these sorts of experiments in general, I would lean toward pre-registering and a pre-analysis plan, frankly. I think in our case, we just wanted to make clear that we had a very theoretically grounded set of predictions. The one dimension of heterogeneity that we exploit in the paper really is this dimension across priors. In the pre-registration, I don't recall how explicit we were about splitting the sample. I think, again, because of the theoretical foundation for the paper, it was obvious that one would separately study the group of people who are updating their beliefs positively and the group of people who are updating their beliefs negatively. That was a very well defined split. But in fact, in the paper, we also split the data by cells. So, so we can look at the heterogeneous treatment effects for people with priors in a bin of zero to five percent plant participation, five to 10, 10 to 50, 50 to 20, 20 to 25, and so on. And that sort of heterogeneity was not pre-specified. I don't think it was particularly controversial. In this case, it was just doing something non-parametric that was, or, or slightly parametric, that I don't think anybody had problems with, but any more heterogeneity than that. And I think some readers might've become uncomfortable in the sense of, of you know, fishing for results. In that respect, one might have liked a richer pre-analysis plan that might have had, you know, different hypotheses to test. So one might have been interested in heterogeneity depending on certain individual characteristics. Now, the point of the pre-analysis plan is one only pre-registers analyses that one has some real theoretical sort of confidence in. And I'll say, you know, one reason maybe that we were okay with just pre-registration, Was it the clear predictions that we had in mind, sort of a causal effect of of posterior beliefs on participation, that causal effect being heterogeneous, you know, sort of in in terms of the changes in beliefs, depending on whether the changes were positive or negative. Those were obvious predictions. They were theoretically grounded and totally uncontroversial, making pre-registration, you know, I would say sufficient. And and in our case, we certainly had a referee in the publication process who looked into the pre-registration. Um, who asked us some fairly important questions about pre-registration, the number of outcome variables that we were collecting, and so on. And at, at the end, the, the referee was was satisfied, and I think we didn't do anything controversial at all. But had we been even more precise with a full pre-analysis plan, I think it would have made things even easier,
0: honestly. Do you think a pre registring especially if, if you have a full pre-analysis plan, does kind of limit you in incorporating new ideas that come up later in the process? So
1: I can imagine that it might in some cases. I think one thought related to the entire research process here is that, you know, suppose we had pre-registered or submitted a pre-analysis plan that very specifically laid out certain research questions and statistical tests in our first descriptive paper. Now, I do think we were particularly interested in beliefs and preferences, as I, said, as I said, in advance of writing that paper. But imagine that we had written a pre-analysis plan and not looked at those variables or somehow felt constrained not to look at those variables. One could miss out on something important. I understand that the concerns about pre-analysis plans tying hands too much. On the other hand, I think different types of engagement with data really do have different purposes. And I guess I, so far at least, I haven't seen outcomes that were, were terribly like inefficient or unjust as far as I can tell. So. Our first paper was explicitly a descriptive paper. To some extent, it could be seen as like a phishing exercise in the sense of like just presenting a bunch of correlations. Now we're not presenting the data in terms of like, here are a bunch of statistically significant relationships. We present all of the data. And in that sense, it isn't phishing. It's trying to to paint the full picture. And and that's that's explicitly the purpose of the paper. Having described a bunch of patterns, we then aim to test specific hypotheses. And I do think it was useful to us to specify those hypotheses in advance. So it became very credible to the reader that what one was seeing in the paper was a test of those hypotheses that we know how to conduct statistical inference on, because those are the only hypotheses being tested. And so what I would say about pre-analysis plans and hand-tying and stuff like that is I think if one is interested in in discovering the richness of social science patterns and data, one should engage with the data and not tie one's hands, but but just be direct and transparent about the process that led to the findings that that one has. And in an experiment where fully pre-specify everything, it becomes very clear how to interpret the results. In a descriptive paper where you have done a whole bunch of statistical testing and you present the patterns, it's good to be transparent about what you're doing. I don't think that it becomes a less interesting descriptive paper because you're you're running a bunch of tests. In, in either case, the patterns in your data might be false positives, or they might be telling you something interesting about the world, or they might be telling you something that's confounded by omitted variables or reverse causality, um, in which case you should go out and try to test your hypothesis as rigorously as possible, an independent study. I, I would also say it's often the case, but not always, that very constructive referees or editors will suggest paths toward hypothesis testing that, that may not have been indicated in the pre-analysis plan, but at that point become, I think, very legitimate tests to view as you know, statistical tests that can be interpreted naturally as not the result of sort of over-testing or anything like that. And in a very constructive refereeing and editorial process, these tests come out quite naturally. And just as a final point, I think that to the extent that one does observe something in the data ex post and in very natural hypothesis test comes up. And again, I, I haven't seen a case where providing that very natural test and then indicating in a footnote that this represents a deviation from the pre-analysis plan. I've not encountered a situation where a referee or an editor was unduly harsh in evaluating that sort of test. So, I mean, I, I will say, I think doing good scholarship requires good work by the researchers and good faith efforts by researchers and ideally also good faith efforts by referees and editors. You know, maybe I've been a little bit lucky, but so far you know, I think I've had generally like very good faith interactions. And as I said, not not necessarily superficial or trivial treatment, but constructive and engaged referee responses to my work.
0: But in general, So if you think a researcher has a clear plan about tests in mind before they run the experiment, then it makes sense just to pre-register to get extra credibility? Or... I would, yeah. Okay. Um, and you already mentioned that in the end of the project you like, ran out of time a bit because you had these fixed data as well about when the protest was happening. So how did the timeline for the project look like when you started it? How many months, years in advance did you start?
1: So yeah, it depends a little bit on how, how you date things. But, but we started conducting surveys in Hong Kong, I think in 2015. We had the first wave of survey data in fall of 2015 or so. If I get my dates right, this you know for the record, this might be slightly less accurate, so take it with a pinch of salt. But I think this is broadly right. We certainly looked at at this one wave of data that we described in this descriptive paper that I mentioned, and we were putting that data together. And I think the, the timing seems to line up in my mind correctly in the winter and spring, going into the spring of 2016. We were putting together these these graph graphs that that describe the patterns in the data, um, and that's when we noticed. Um, this interesting pattern of, of sort of pessimism among the anti-authoritarian politically active students. So I think that spring, March, April, we started thinking about experiments relating to beliefs and the strategic component to the protest game. But my sense is that we really made a lot of progress. That May, where I mean, which really is telling you we're cutting it close. I think that May David and I met in Madrid. And so we were in the same place, not and, and in fact in the same time zone as David did. And that allowed us to coordinate very easily and, and invest these long hours in getting the details right of the experimental design. But given that we didn't have that much time. So we we did just pre-register. We needed to submit IRB documents and, and get IRB approval. So the whole project had at least a year plus leading up to that experiment, more even, closer to two years. But from the moment when we first had a hint that this is the experiment we want to run, we only had about maybe three, four months of lead up and about one month of really intense sort of experimental design and then administrative work to get the, the experiment off the ground.
0: And so did everything from that point kind of run smoothly or did you did take things still take longer than you expected?
1: Yeah, I mean I things always take longer than expected. I certain things happen happen quite smoothly. So I think the rollout of the surveys worked quite well. We had some electronic payment of of students and that led to some hiccups, but eventually they got paid. I can't complain. I must say I've definitely been engaged in in projects that have been much harder to pull off logistically. So in this case, I think it was surprisingly smooth, but I will also say, I think David was really in the lead in designing the survey and coding the survey. And I think Jane was in the lead in implementing things on the ground and making sure that things on the Hong Kong side with payments and subject recruitment worked smoothly. And so it may be the case that those two have a different recollection.
0: And um, so did you at all go to Hong Kong yourself during these experiments and kind of work with the local people or does Jane handle that for this project? Um, so, I mean,
1: definitely multiple members, all of us were in Hong Kong over the last you know five, six years as we sort of developed the research agenda, meeting with some of the protest leaders, trying to understand the context. David and I were there more regularly, and in the lead up to this study, we yeah we were we were there every certainly once a year and, and in some cases, slightly more often. But I would say a lot of that was was really sort of engaging with Jane, making sure we were all on the same page, getting some sense of of the institutional environment. So learning what did it mean for these students at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology to participate in a protest? What did local organization of, of political engagement look like? And then what do these marches look like on the ground? And, and so, yeah, there, there was some of that, but in fact, the experiment itself was very hands-off. So once Jane had access to the email list, and once we understood how we could pay students electronically, which we could do through their student ID numbers or other electronic ways uh, that, that we took advantage of later, most of the logistics could be done entirely online, which, which made things you know easier in many ways.
0: So, and when you are in Hong Kong or somewhere else in the field, then do you mostly like focus all your time on this project that you're currently working on or do you also spend some time working on other projects? Or do, how does a day in the field mm-hmm. look like? Kind of?
1: No, that's a great question. I mean, so this project, as suggested, like didn't involve sort of traditional field work of, of being directly involved in data collection on the ground, the field work. I think really involved getting to know the institutions. And honestly, that that was just pleasure. So was, I think you know, maybe this should be said more often, People should try to engage in, in research that gives them joy day to day. Maybe not always joy, but but certainly for me and my co-authors, to spend time together was a lot of fun. To spend time interacting with these young student movement leaders was often inspiring and always interesting. And to see the protests on the ground, to see you know tens of thousands of people of all ages, in fact expressing themselves really you know happily and peacefully primarily expressing you know very reasonable and, and I think noble political objectives was was just fun and interesting and so in that sense I think while on the ground it was easy to be quite fully engaged with the research project and the environment and and as I said some of this also involved not not being on the ground in Hong Kong but just sort of like intense brainstorming over experimental design and pr- I think If people aren't doing this in a really focused way, I I admire them, I guess. I think that for us, it it really took full concentration to think through all the details, all the things that can go wrong, and just getting things really right. Even in terms of the language, how do you elicit beliefs in a precise enough way that then you can ask people, you can ask about priors, then you can somehow get them to update their beliefs in a way that's not really misleading them. So you're telling them you're eliciting prior beliefs in an incentivized way, then you're asking them for an update and you're paying them based on their updated posterior beliefs. So uh, this required sort of careful construction of the language in the service, the language of elicitation, elicitation of plans, elicitation of beliefs. And th- yeah, it just, it, it took detailed work literally down to the word to get this, you know, more or less right. And and surely what we did is not perfect. But um, I think we were super
0: careful. To conclude the interview, could you briefly tell us how a normal workday for you looks like? So do you have like a special morning routine or time set apart for reading papers?
1: I should. My days are very heterogeneous, I would say. I think I'm the sort of person who likes to work on a project in a block. And so that will often mean, and, and has meant historically, that I've worked really well and productively when traveling to see co-authors, for example. And so this is where I could go to Madrid, where I don't have any affiliation, and work with David for three or four days without any other distractions and just focus on a paper. Now, I I don't typically tra- travel to Madrid to do research, just for for the heck of it, though I wouldn't mind. But I think the the general approach to work for me is I really need to dive into a project and at the very least I would say that means I will try to block off a full day you know oftentimes it's two or three days in my calendar and and I'm just going to work on this now that might mean that I'm also you know dealing with emails at times it might every now and then mean a referee report sneaks in but I try to minimize that and hence and later on referee reports sometimes than I would like to be because I want to block off three, four days to finish a draft of a paper, let's say. And I can't get into a paper, work on three lines of the introduction for two hours, and then go and write a referee report, and then come back to the introduction and work on the next three lines. That's very difficult for me. So yeah, I, I try to find blocks wherever I can.
0: Thanks so much for being on the podcast.
1: Sure. My pleasure.